Welcome to the podcast of Mosaic Church, celebrating diversity within community. All right, hello. Gabriel Clevenger, the pastor at the table, and I should say hello to Mosaic of Easley today as well. So, 2020, huh? If back in January we had some sort of picture of seeing clearly what the year would bring, or having a clear vision of how to go through this year, then we all know we missed it. Nobody had this on their planner at the beginning of the year, and even now in August, having limped through the majority of the year thus far, we still have so many questions about school starting, the economy, about what medicines work and how, when will a vaccine be ready? And none of that takes into account the mammoth that is usually sucking up the oxygen in every day of August and September every four years, the general election still to come. There's so much that we just don't know. Now, this is always true in a way, but this year it seems so pronounced and important. Many of us have experienced loss already, whether directly from the sickness as some of you have lost family members, or maybe your retirement has taken a hit, or your employment options are severely limited and cut short in the way Uh, things are being done right now, and with most conversations you have, you will most likely address at least the pervasive uncertainty and concern in some cases, or despair in others. Now, the narrative of Jacob's midnight struggle that is our text today has a lot to speak to us right now. It's an unfortunate side effect of much of the way the Bible has been taught for the last few generations, that we are often very familiar with particular snapshots without perceiving where they fit into the whole. I remember as a child one time reading a book about Samson. It was one of those really short books with one drawing per episode, as it were, of Samson's life. Now, if you had read the story of Samson from start to finish in the book of Judges, (laughs) you know that there are some details there that are distinctly not child-friendly. Accordingly, those were absent from the book I was reading as a child, which portrayed Samson as a champion, strong man, being the 100% hero for God's people. Later in life, as I led a study through the book of Judges for adults at church, they too, long-time and biblically literate Christians, all of them, were at times visibly left with their mouths hanging open as we read through the plain text and put the pieces together as they were presented. You see, every one of them in there had heard the stories of Gideon and Samson, likely from the time they were young. Some of them had heard of Ehud, Deborah, and Jephthah in maybe an advanced Bible study class, but a sad reality for them And what I find also to be true in the vast majority of people to whom I speak and pieces that I read is that most people do not know how the pieces fit together. We know individual stories, which is good, and those are the building blocks that the story is put together with. But we have to go that next step of putting it together. And consider this. Last week, my three-year-old daughter brought one of her puzzles into the living room. It's one of those puzzles uh, with all the pieces made out of wood, so it's pretty sturdy. It's an alphabet puzzle. Each piece has a letter on it with an illustration of something, uh, the name of which begins with that letter. So A has an apple on it, B has a ball, and so on. Well, the pieces are big, and the junctions between them are cut in pretty big, simple jigsaw patterns. And we had fun. She knows the alphabet song well enough to sing it herself, but the connections that the song she's singing actually corresponds to the letters on these pieces, and that those pieces fit together were those connections that we were making on this particular day. It was pretty simple at first. A, B, C come pretty easily, but it was in four rows. So once we got to H, we were starting a new line such that I was under A. Now there were trusty red lines in the flat edges of the completed puzzle, so I could teach her to always recognize the edge pieces. And we used what she knew to identify the pieces. You know, S, 
had a snake on it, you had an umbrella, and so on. But we had to constantly return to the bit of the song that would help her know what came next. As soon as we had finished putting D in place, connected to C, we had to sing the song again to know what letter came next, you know? That was the bigger story, if you will, of what we were actually doing. She knew most of the objects on the pieces, but seeing how they fit together was what I had to help her do. Because of some of the powerful and distinctive imagery and events in a story like Jacob's Midnight Struggle, we run the risk of forgetting what came before it and what comes after, and as a result, we forget its part in the bigger story of what God is telling. There are big things here, the mysterious figure, the life or death struggle, and the precedent for why at the time of writing the Israelites did not eat the thigh muscle on the hip socket of animals they cooked. Jacob's name is changed here to Israel. These are all big things, and it's right to hover over them, but we lose something very important if we see this as an isolated episode in the life of someone a long time ago in a place far, far away. So let's take a look at what had been going on in Jacob's life before this scene and what would happen in Israel's life after it. Jacob had been traveling with his family, finally getting away from his father-in-law Laban. This part of Jacob's life up to this point had been fraught with deception, skullduggery, creative animal husbandry, and all sorts of family strife. But he was in, a, in every way a very different person returning to the land of his father Isaac and grandfather Abraham than he was when he left. He was older, wiser, more accomplished. He was a husband and father, and he was returning home a rich man with much in the way of livestock, possessions, and servants. He had issues within, within his family, though. He had left Laban with an agreement, but Rachel had violated his agreement with her father by stealing some of the household items and, and lying about it. Laban had come after them, angry. After a very tense time, Jacob and Laban, Laban came to an agreement again and went their ways again. But no sooner had he left his father-in-law behind him again than he was informed of the problem of his brother before him. Esau had heard of Jacob's return and was coming out to meet him with 400 of his best fighting friends. <laughs> Knowing the story about Jacob and Esau will remind you that Jacob was not excited to see his brother, and it was not unwise to assume that Esau did not have good intentions on his brother's return. So Jacob did what Jacob always did. He schemed. He had contingencies for his options. I mean, he always had a plan. He essentially sent everything that he had ahead of him to meet Esau first, hoping to control the narrative of how the encounter would go. If Esau started killing people, Jacob would have time to escape. I mean, that's actually in there. He even sent his wives and children ahead of himself, not to joy, but very possibly into danger. That brings us up to the night that we read about here in our passage for today. What happened that night can't be explained really only told. Jacob is confronted with someone whom he judged to be an adversary. The struggle was one of life and death, as Jacob saw it at the time. We mentioned the detail of his hip being dislocated as though it's just an interesting detail, but a quick Google search will tell you of some of the effects of a dislocated hip. Extreme pain, deformity, the hip can turn inward toward the body, the leg will be a different length than the other leg, and so on. The sound of that hip popping out at the injury would have been unsettling, and the pain that came with it at every movement afterward was surely exquisite. This injury was something that Israel would not be able to forget for the rest of his life, even if he intended to. Somewhere along the way, Jacob realized that he was not struggling with a natural man, but a supernatural being. He knew that he had to fight for his life. Not that the being would kill him, but so that he would leave this altercation better 
then he started it. Jacob always means for every ordeal to benefit him, so he held on. Even injured, maimed, possibly deformed, he held on. This is the first thing that I want to be sure that you take away from today. This shouldn't surprise us about Jacob. He worked seven years to be able to marry the woman he loved and was deceived by his father-in-law at that point. Then he worked another seven for her. He was ruthless and careful in his deceiving of his own father and cheating of his own brother. So Jacob was patient, shrewd, and clever. So while we don't really want to emulate Jacob's actions up to this point, in this moment it is admirable and commendable that he held on. Second thing I want to impress on you is this. The blessing he received was not what he expected, but it was what God gave him. He survived the encounter with God, but he was never the same. His name was changed and he walked with a limp that was so prominent and well-known that it affected how the Israelites butchered food for generations. In many ways, this blessing changed him. Yes, his name was changed, but the next morning, as he limps into the sunrise, he goes before his family to encounter his brother, when his intention all the way up until just the night before was to put even them in harm's way before him. His name change is a kind of a complicated thing, in a good way. To say that his name is changed to, to Israel because he contends with God can mean a couple of things. As in, if we were to say that Israel walked a different way after his encounter, well, is that to say that he now limps, or is that to say that he now behaves differently? Well, yes, <laughs> to both. His new name is a kind of the same thing. The story of the people who will be called Israel after him is one of a people who contend, who wrestle with God. Yes, they disobey and they fight with him and they are corrected as disobedient children, but they also remain interlocked in relationship with him for the sake of the world. The next thing I want to point out to you is this, is that there was still a lot of life to live. Just because God blessed him didn't mean that he didn't have to keep on struggling. I mean, if you read the rest of Genesis, you'll see that the, his children were a mess. He ended up de they ended up deceiving him about Joseph, his, his son, but God stayed faithful. Though unsure about whether his brother was going to kill him here in chapter 2, by the end of the story, Israel was finally embalmed in Egypt, grieved by the Egyptians as royalty for 10 weeks in Egypt before those leaders of Egypt all went with Joseph and his family back to Canaan to grieve Israel there at his burial in chapter 50. And lastly, what I want to impress on you today is that it matters what story you're reading. Here's what I mean. If you only read the story of Jacob up to this point, you would certainly not admire him much, and you shouldn't. Deception, betrayal, dishonesty were what Jacob was known for. His name really meant deceiver or usurper. If the only puzzle piece we had was of the events of Jacob's life up to this point, he is to be pitied at best or condemned. Sure, he had some visions from God, but his life was a travesty in his choices that he had made. But there was more. Imperfect as he was and continued to be, he had a different name. He walked a different way. His life was a list of opportunities for God to prove God's faithfulness. Jacob is a piece of the puzzle, part of the song that God is singing that tells the story of what he is doing. It narrates where all those pieces fit and gives meaning to each of them as they are, but only taken together with the nature of the whole. So how about for us today, and in the middle of coronavirus, political arguments, uh, sickness, grieving, things changing all around us? 
Well, I'll argue that the same four things that we've seen with Jacob in this story, now named Israel, are true for us. Number one, hold on. Jacob's blessing was the product of his not letting go. While Christ has accomplished the work of salvation, and there is nothing that you can do to earn that, Jesus speaks in Matthew 10, Matthew chapter 24, Revelation chapter 2, of those who endure to the end. So while we can't take credit for anything God does, we do have to remain diligent in perseverance. Number two, it's entirely possible that the blessing you receive from God may in fact be a limp. Often what you ask for and what God gives are different things, but you can rest assured that God knows what he's doing. It is a blessing to encounter God and walk differently than when you arrived. The experience of that encounter can change the way that you walk for the rest of your life. Number three, there's still a lot of life left to live. Even when you open yourself to receive what God is speaking to you and go where he is leading you, there will still be work to do. And number four, lastly, it matters what the story is. Now this is a difficult one for us to hear. We have a certain way of making sense of everything and it can be hard for us to be confronted with the possibility that maybe you or I have been trying to fit the pieces together in the wrong way or singing the wrong song, as it were. Well not in awful or evil ways necessarily, but rather in ways that work well enough from our viewpoints, but turn out to be different from what God is doing, even if ever so slightly. The story of your family is meant to be a good story, and I pray that it is, but it is not the only or the last story. The story of your family is meant to be one puzzle piece fitted together in the story of what God is doing. The story of this country is meant to be a good story. Many are arguing now about what that actually means and how it's to be viewed. But whatever it is, we know it's not the main story. For those who are seeking the kingdom of God, whatever earthly country we live in is most definitely temporary. And it is by no means the crowning piece of the puzzle. But it is way too easy to get wrapped up in fitting the pieces of our corner of the puzzle together and lose track. That's when we need to return to the story. The creed from today is an excellent reminder of what the story is. God the Father, creator of all things. God the Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He was crucified. He is risen. He will come again. God the Holy Spirit, whose domain is the rest of it. Church, communion, baptism, life of the age to come. Resurrection. When we get caught up wondering what is the story or tempted to see a different story as the story, this is a great place for us to come back to in the creed, in the story of Scripture. Now, while my daughter and I were working on the puzzle that I told you about, I could see that the puzzle was set up to make sense if one could read. The letter started at the top and went right until the next letter started on the second line. Well, that makes sense to you and me because we can read. That's the way our pages are set up when we read longer things. And you can't remember when you didn't think like that. Neither can I. But that's not intuitive. It doesn't just make sense. And it certainly doesn't make sense to a three-year-old daughter who can't read like that yet. She had to trust me. She had to trust me on a number of things, like how it was supposed to be put together and the few objects on the pieces that she didn't know. And she did. I let her work on putting the pieces together, even if she had to work at it for a little bit. 
I wanted her to learn how to do what I wanted her to be able to do. Not so that she somehow wouldn't need me anymore, but rather to be able to take joy in what I taught her to do and how I taught her to do it. We got halfway through it, and I could see she was doing okay. She was doing well, but I wanted her to see some of it come together. So I put together the very last row on the bottom while she was busy fitting a couple of pieces just right. This gave her a sense of how what she had done was going to fit into everything else and to see how it all ended. As she was putting together N, O, P, and Q, she was getting to fit the pieces into what she had already done above those letters and what I had done for her on the last row below. Her work was fitting all together, and when she finished, it was joy for both of us to have done it together. Could she have done it without me? No. But would I have wanted to do it without her? Certainly not. God wants for you to hold on and even to struggle a bit with how the pieces fit from time to time. You learn from him what and how to do, and he takes joy in your imitation of him. You're learning how he does it. And he will take care of the end, showing you how what you did fits into the whole. You see, the one who wrote the story wants for you to hold on and to stick with it. He wants for you to ask of him for help. He wants for you to live the life that he has given you for his glory. And he wants for you to do your best as you listen to him guide you as to how those pieces fit into the bigger story. As you step out into this world today and tomorrow and the next day, you might feel as Jacob did, as though you didn't know what's coming next, that you're in pain, maybe even like you're locked in a struggle in the dark. That's okay. Expect to come out of it changed and blessed with a new name and a new way of walking if you can just hold on to the God who is putting those pieces together. God bless you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information, please visit us at www.mosaiceasley.org.